This is Hublonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hublonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. In 1992, a well-intentioned targeted program named 340B required pharmaceutical companies to provide eligible hospitals with drugs at a substantial discount for the benefit of uninsured patients. Those hospitals were then to use any savings and profits from the program to provide comprehensive services for the poor and uninsured. Since its inception, however, healthcare systems have exploited the statute's vague guidance to reap billions in profits by purchasing 340B drugs at a discount and then selling those deeply discounted drugs to insured patients at retail prices. Perhaps more disturbing is the trend that while 340B program profits have soared, access to discounted drugs and charity programs for the uninsured have been in steady decline. The numbers involved in this distorted drug program are staggering, now exceeding the value of both the Medicaid drug benefit and Medicare Part D. How did this worthy program get so distorted? And how can policymakers reform 340B in a way that realigns incentives to better serve the uninsured? My guest today is Pioneer Institute's visiting fellow in life sciences, Dr. Bill Smith, who will talk about the findings in his recently released paper entitled 340B Discounts, an Increasingly Dysfunctional Program. In the paper, Dr. Smith describes the arc of how this well-intentioned program seems to have lost its direction and grown to generate massive profits for hospitals while simultaneously reducing drug benefits and charity programs for the uninsured. Bill will offer his views on what legislatures can do to realign program incentives to better guarantee the uninsured receive their drug benefits and ensure the profits from the program go toward our poorest citizens. When I return, I'll be joined by Pioneer Institute's Dr. Bill Smith. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm pleased to be joined by Pioneer Institute's visiting fellow in life sciences, Dr. Bill Smith. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Bill. Thank you, Joe. Glad to be here. Great. Well, Bill, I found your recently released uh, Pioneer report entitled 340B Discounts, an Increasingly Dysfunctional Program. I found it somewhat alarming. Uh, I want to set the stage for our listeners uh, that we're talking about a federal program designed to help low-income, uninsured people afford medication. and it's largely been exploited by the medical community to reap literally billions in profits uh, with little of those billions uh, going to, to where the um, statute was intended. So there's a lot to unpack in your paper. So let's start with uh, some history. Let's start at the beginning. What was the original idea be- behind 340B uh, and when did the program begin? Well, it, it actually didn't begin as a federal program. It just began when a number of drug companies, many drug companies actually, started giving deep discounts to hospitals that treated a large number of uninsured or low-income patients. Uh, The drug companies knew that those hospitals were struggling financially, and so they made voluntary concessionary discounts available to them. And in 1992, the federal government decided, the Congress decided, well, we're going to make this program mandatory. So we're going to require that the drug companies give discounts to uh, hospitals that treat large numbers of low income or uninsured patients. And, you know, the the program started out fine. I would have supported it in 1992. It 
It targeted about 500 hospitals and clinics around the country. It was limited and it, and it was largely limited to those uh, hospitals and, and clinics that did treat large numbers of low-income uninsured. But starting in about 10, 15 years ago, the program absolutely exploded. Um, you become eligible as a hospital for to become eligible for these 340B discounts based on the number of patients, you uh, Medicaid patients you treat. Uh, the federal government and the Congress thought uh, that's a proxy for you're treating low-income or uninsured patients. And when they expanded the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid exploded in the number of patients, many, many more hospitals became eligible. So the program started out with about 500 hospitals. It now has about 2,500 hospitals. Uh, and those hospitals have expanded to satellite offices. So there are now 37,000 covered entities uh, in the program. So your, um, your paper does suggest that um, much of the reason has exploded and um, the eligibility has expanded uh, is owed to the vagary of the, the statute. Um, you know, as you mentioned in your paper, it was originally designed to target, quote unquote, covered entities, but left it to the system itself to infer who was covered. Say more about how these vagaries are easily exploited. Well, let me first explain why the program is so popular with hospitals and why it exploded. So <clears throat> under the 340B program, you can get a substantial discount when you purchase a drug. So let's say a hospital, just to, to make it simple, a hospital can, can, can purchase an oncology drug for $25,000 when the list price of that oncology drug is $100,000. So they're getting a 75% discount. So if you as a, as a hospital administrator can lure into your hospital or to your satellite office, a patient that's that has insurance and is wealthy, you can dispense that drug to that patient for $25,000 and then bill his insurance company or Medicare for $100,000. And you can pocket the $75,000 spread. Um, it, it, this is basic arbitrage. It, it happens in many areas of business, but this 340B program is now being arbitraged. And the, the statute, getting back to your original question, the statute was written in poorly. So the program is not limited to only uh, dispensing drugs to low-income patients or in low-income neighborhoods or to uninsured patients. So there, the statute didn't define anything about who's eligible for the program and who might uh, share in these these disc, drug discounts. I see. So now um, you said it's grown substantially since its inception. In your first answer, you did say um, the original program used Medicaid um, patients as a proxy for implying that a, a, a hospital is located where there are lots of Medicaid recipients uh, and inf inferred from that um, that there also must be uh, lots of charity cases. Um, describe for our listeners, where were these original 340B participant hospitals and where have they you know, sprung up now? Who, who, who's joining the system uh, from where it used to be? Yeah, so originally, uh, Joe, that's a good question. Uh, originally, these hospitals and clinics were in low-income areas, both rural and urban areas uh, that treated large numbers of low-income patients. Uh, but since 2004, there's substantial data to suggest that a lot of these hospitals and their satellite offices are being located in wealthier areas that have higher rates of insurance. Uh, and, and that's part in part 
due to the fact that they can arbitrage the drug discounts. So they want to get patients in there that have Medicare or commercial insurance coverage because then they can bill for the full price of the drug while they buy the drug at the discount. Uh, your paper, uh, we we're talking about a program that was originally intended to help people who didn't have insurance. Now, in the, in the, uh, in the meantime, we've uh, passed uh, the Affordable Care Act. It's stated intent and its effect, I think, has been to have more people uh, become uh, insured, both low income uh, or people who had formerly been on Medicaid or uninsured altogether. Um, so if we have fewer people who would be, in theory, eligible for 340B uh, benefits, did we see a decrease in the amount of 340B uh, activity once the Affordable Care Act uh, was implemented? Joe, just the opposite. You know, in 2012, there were only there were 54 million people covered under Medicaid. And this year, there are 83 million people covered under Medicaid. So the number of people insured has grown substantially. Um, the number of uninsured has dropped dramatically. One would have expected, given that the 340B program was supposed to treat the uninsured, one would have expected that the 340B program would have declined over the past decade. Just the opposite. That's when it had its most explosive growth over the last decade. So it's up to about $38 billion in sales. And the 340B program will soon eclipse in size both the Medicaid prog drug program, which has 83 million recipients, and the Medicare, Medicare Part D program, which has over 50 million recipients, and they're senior citizens who tend to use a lot of drugs. So this, we may be wonkish talking about a 340B program that nobody really knows about, but it's now the largest federal drug program in the, in the United States. Yeah, the numbers are staggering when you compare it to what we already consider fairly costly programs, Medicaid and Medicare Part D. Uh, to eclipse those programs is, is saying something. So I think that's why this, this uh, program deserves our attention. Now, uh, let's uh, set aside that uh, despite the fact that the ACA is, has more people insured and therefore one would think the byproduct of that would be fewer 340B claims, uh, they went up. So that means... Um, um, hospitals were generating more money from this program than they had before the ACA. Um, another feature of that 340B I don't think we've addressed is that the program was supposed to uh, help uh, uh, hospitals use the savings they get from those discounts and apply those to uh, programs uh, for charity. In other words, they're supposed to take the benefit and apply that benefit to charitable patients. Um, have we seen a, an increase in the amount of money that hospitals are giving to charity owing to their, you know, this windfall of, of a program? Yeah, Joe, just, just the opposite. We've seen charity care decline, and it would have been very difficult for me to write a paper critical of the 340B program had the billions of dollars that this program is generating been devoted to programs for low income and uninsured. But that's just not the case. I, I don't want to pick on Mass General because there are excellent hospital. They're part of the whole life sciences ecosystem here in, in, in the greater Boston area. But in 2013, they were spending 3.8% of their revenues on charity care for low-income people. And in 2020, that dropped to 1%. It's been a straight line down, as it has in many hospitals. And at the same time, we know that they're expanding their 340B presence. They, they had one pharmacy dispensing their, their 340B drugs in 2017. They now have 132 pharmacies uh, dispensing their 340B drugs. So we know the revenues are growing. 
they're not required to disclose the amount of revenue they're getting from 340B, but it must be explosive if you've gone from one pharmacy to 132 pharmacies. And Mass General has expanded. They have offices now in some of the wealthiest towns in, in Massachusetts, Wellesley, Concord, Waltham, Newton. Uh, they even have offices in Nashua, New Hampshire, and York, Maine. Um, so, And part of the reason for this growth is that they can leverage these 340B discounts in these areas. So it's, it's a troubling thing, particularly because the charity care numbers have been declining. I found a striking uh, feature of your paper in that... Uh that originally the 340B was going to hospitals that did more charity work. Uh, your paper points to the research that indicates that um, what these newer hospitals, these bigger hospitals, I don't want to throw um, the Mass General under the bus, but uh, when compared with those hospitals that don't participate in 340B, in theory, those that don't do um, substantial charity work, there's actually uh, less charity work being done in 340B hospitals than there are in non-340B hospitals, which is to say there's no correlation between one's uh, inclination to exploit 340B and one's uh, inclination to serve charity cases. This is very troubling. Say more about this phenomenon. Yeah, that's that's precisely right. Uh, there, there are studies to suggest that 340B hospitals give less charity care than either government or for-profit hospitals. Um, and one would expect, given the revenues that are generated from 340B program, which are estimated to be $40 billion for these hospitals, that the, the nonprofit 340B hospitals would be dispensing much more charity care. But the data suggests that's not true. Well, you break down uh, th three types of hospitals, I suppose. I've never thought of it this way, but there's for-profit, non-profit, and uh, government. So for-profit is supposed to be the bad guys, I suppose, in a, in a modern uh, uh, narrative. Uh, non-profits are good guys. Uh, your paper suggests that non-profits are, in measurable terms, doing the least amount of charity work when compared with uh, for-profit and government hospitals. Say more about that data. Yeah, and I don't want to, uh, Joe, I don't want to cast the, the, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here because we did find hospitals in urban areas in the Boston area, such as Boston Medical Center and Cambridge Hospital, Everett Hospital, that were they were giving out a huge amount of charity care, you know, more than 10 percent of revenue some years. Um, uh, unlike Mass General and, and, and UMass Memorial in Worcester and Bay State in Springfield, where the numbers are closer to one percent. So it's, there's some hospitals and clinics that are really doing the Lord's work when it comes to charity care. And so I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. But on average, charity care has been declining at these nonprofit 340B hospitals, which one would not have expected given the growth in the program. Sure. And you mentioned uh, briefly that the, uh, the, the 340B programs are, are uh, branching out to smaller um, uh, more affluent communities, but uh, you know, local community uh, physician groups themselves. How does the 340B program interfere with uh, community physician practices? Well, to be frank, the hospitals are just buying up community-based practices. 51% um, of the community-based oncology practices are now vertically integrated into a hospital system because they've been bought up. And the reason they've been bought up is obvious because in neurology uh, and, and oncology and, and in those specialty areas where you're dispensing expensive drugs, uh, the you can keep the spread <laughs> as a hospital system and arbitrage the, the 340B discounts when you purchase an oncology practice and bring in a huge amount of revenue. Um, so this is 
troubling because people like community-based practices. They don't want them to see their local community uh, physician practice being bought up by a hospital. Uh, but it's also the case that once these, these practices are bought up, there is an incentive not only to prescribe more drugs, but to prescribe more expensive drugs because you're going to be able to leverage those discounts. So uh, it, it's it's not great all the way around. And, uh, and you know, the, the, the oncology community is well aware of this problem and, and they've been fighting back, uh, trying to avoid these the purchase of these, some of these community-based clinics. So if I'm someone who enjoys, a, you know, a community physician practice, um, some may say, well, why, why, I'm indifferent to who owns or how in vertically integrated my system is, my doctor is. Uh, but what your paper points out is once it does join this integrated system, everything in that practice becomes substantially more expensive, not unlike uh, where that practice to move into the city. Uh, the, the drugs, the uh, physician visits all go up in price. And you also mentioned in your, in your remark that uh, given that uh, the hospitals arbitrage the difference between what a, it's, it's a percentage base, uh, the more expensive the drug, the greater the discount, the greater the profit. There's a, a clear incentive to raise drug prices based on the difference between the retail and the 340B discount. Yes, and and, and again, it's not just drug prices that go up. Dr overall healthcare costs in the hospital setting is are more expensive generally. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm very sympathetic to hospitals. My sister's a hospital administrator in New York, and I know it's a difficult business, but it is more expensive to treat somebody in a hospital setting or a hospital satellite office than in a community-based physician practice. That's just the reality. Uh, and so this expansion of hospitals into wealthy suburbs is going to drive up healthcare costs and is driving up healthcare costs. So um, uh, sort of the icing on the cake before we shift gears into what you recommend is perhaps a, a useful uh, remedy for many of these perverse incentives. Uh, you, you describe a case whereby uh, when combined with a Medicaid rebate, a drug company that sells a drug, I think you use it, uh, you know, for instance, a hundred dollar drug that winds up costing the, the drug manufacturer money to sell the drug, which seems unbelievable. But, uh, you know, many people like to uh, trash the reputations or, or uh, incentives of drug companies, but to uh, have a system whereby a drug company loses money for every pill it sells, to say more of how um, 340B and the Medicaid rebate might combine to make a negative um, a margin. Yeah, so it's 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 simple. It's called a, it's a problem called duplicate discounts, which were banned in the original statute. It's actually a violation of federal law for a pharmacy to to obtain duplicate discounts. So let, let's say you um, you get it, you buy a drug at, at twenty five dollars, um, which is the three forty B price, um, and then it, the the patient goes to the pharmacy and the the drug is purchased. And then the pharmacy bills the drug manufacturer for a $35 rebate. The, the company now has just lost $10 on that sale uh, because they're getting both the 340B discount as well as a Medicaid rebate. Um, and this is a common problem. It's in the hundreds of millions of dollars probably that these duplicate discounts happen um, every year. Uh, and it, again, it was banned in federal law. And one would think with our current software systems, they'd be able to solve this problem, but they haven't. Um, and inspectors general and all sorts of people, the Justice Department and others have, have come back and said, you got to solve this problem, but they have not. Indeed, indeed. Um, all right, so let's let's stop uh, piling on. Uh, we, we established that 340B um, has created some perverse incentives and uh, 
those of us who pay into this health system are all uh, uh, poorer for it. Let's figure out how to uh, what you would recommend as as reasonable uh, steps towards finding some uh, remedy or solution to this. First, you uh, you would recommend that we require hospitals to report 340B revenues. It seems odd that we don't already do that, but say more about why that's important. Well, that's important because they they do report, although the de definition of charity care needs to be tightened up. They do report in their Medicare cost reports the amount of charity care that they dispense. So if we knew what they were securing in revenue from the 340B program, we could compare that with the amount of charity care that they're giving out each year. Um, and one, one would expect that there's a great disparity between the two numbers these days. Um, and, you know, the transparency might shame them into spending more on charity care, which would be a good thing. Indeed, indeed. Um, now, uh, those uh, presumably the, it's a positive number, the difference between the money they get from 340B and the money they give in charity care. Uh, you would want to your second recommendation is to require those covered entities to spend that money, that profit uh, on charity care. Uh, that seems reasonable. Uh, is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's a, it's a more directive than just the transparency option. But you could require that all revenue that's secured from, through the 340B program must be spent on community programs that serve low-income and uninsured patients. It'd be that simple. Um, right now, we don't know where all that revenue goes. It could go to hospital salaries. It could go to who knows. It could be go to expanding the building. We, we don't know where the money goes now. Um, and requiring it to go to charity care would be a, a boon to charity care around the country. Indeed, that's how it was intended, so it ought to go to the charity. Um, you also want to better define who is eligible for the discounts and, and the charity care, which you addressed early in the paper, that uh, remarkably, uh, it doesn't specifically define who should be eligible. Yeah, I'm not sure why a 340B drug should be given to a millionaire in Wellesley. I just don't, I don't think that fits the, the, but that is happening. That is happening now. Um, I, I don't think that fits the original spirit of the program um, and the statute needs to be tightened up so that doesn't happen. Indeed, and, and that that's a, that dovetails well, well with the next point, which disqualified 340B uh, child sites, satellite sites, we're using that term, in wealthy communities. I'll just say, uh, let me qualify this. I'm sure there's some um, low-income people in Wellesley, probably not many, but uh, we keep going there. Uh, but let, let's let's say, uh, uh, let's use that example again. Why, why would we disqualify the 340B uh, sites in, in wealthy communities? Well, yeah, you know, charity care arises many times spontaneously. You know, it's it's the homeless person who finds himself in the emergency room and doesn't have insurance and and the hospital has to eat the cost of that care. And so if you're locating your satellite offices in wealthy neighborhoods where people have high rates of insurance, you're not going to get that spontaneous charity care happening. Um, so I, I think they ought to limit the, the places where these 340B sites can be to areas that are considered somewhat impoverished in the United States. And I, I don't want to come up with an exact definition of impoverished, but uh, it should be in areas where you are going to get those walk-in patients who aren't insured and are very low income. And that originally, when they first uh, enacted this program, that was happening. These, these, these hospitals and clinics were located in these areas, and there are some that are still located in these areas. But with the expansion, they've more and more uh, expanded this program into wealthier areas that have higher rates of insurance. And I think then the flip side of this is your next recommendation, which is not not only uh, define who is eligible, 
But when we say, let's take that money and give it uh, dedicated to charitable programs, we should define what charitable programs look like and what community programs look like. We, we still haven't done that. Yeah, the definition is not as tight as it should be. So, for example, if a middle class patient comes in and they owe a deductible or a coinsurance payment on whatever treatment that they were given in the hospital and they never pay that, is that charity care? Well, some, some hospitals do define it as charity care because they're eating the cost, but the patient is probably can afford the coinsurance payment and chooses not to pay it. Um, so maybe it's not charity care. I just think they, they should tighten the definition so that these are programs that are serving underserved populations. And you also, of course, want to reform how uh, um, hospitals uh, become eligible for this program. You want to reform the disproportionate share hospital eligibility requirements uh, for the program. And in a sense, I think you're implying that some hospitals ought not to even be in the program. Yeah, you know, as, as we discussed, you know, when the Affordable Care Act expanded Medicaid drastically, yeah, I think it's 11.75% it's is the, the percentage of Medicaid patients that you treat you become eligible for it to become a 340B hospital once you cross that 11.75 threshold. And it's clearly the case that some hospitals have lured in Medicaid patients to get to that number, obtain 340B status, and then not gone further. Uh, their, their Medicaid patient numbers are still at that level. Um, so they're gaming the system to some degree. Now, not all hospitals, but some hospitals for sure. Um, so I, I think they ought to look at Medicaid as a proxy for um, treating low-income patients. I, I'm not sure is, is a workable definition any longer, given the expansion of Medicaid. And they maybe ought to look at other numbers, like how much charity care they give out. That, that could be a threshold um, that, that makes you eligible for 340B status. That would be something to, to earn that status based on how much good you do, rather than how many uh, Medicaid people you lure in. Precisely. Um, uh, and the final one, I'm, I'm not sure I, I know precisely why this is a benefit, but you suggest we should convert 340B programs from discounts to rebates. I guess there must be then, it must be conditioned, that rebate's conditioned on proof that it's being used for the right thing. Yeah, it's, it's complicated, but the, the rebate system would avoid the problem that we discussed with duplicate discounts, because you could, you'd have a little time to figure out who was a Medicaid patient and who wasn't before you wrote the check who was getting a 340B drug and who wasn't. Um, and so the rebate system would help, would help solve that problem. It, it's a very, the pharmacy transactions are extremely complicated, um, but I'm told by people who know them well that a rebate system would, would solve the duplicate discount problem. All right, so those are your recommendations. Uh, um, but our listeners may think, okay, this is fine, but you know what, we're here in Massachusetts, we're the good guys, our hospitals are above reproach. Uh, but you name names in the end of the report, and not all Massachusetts hospitals come out uh, uh, wearing the white hat, I guess. Um, so let's uh, let's uh, name names and uh, uh, talk about where where you see problems, and where we'll call out some other hospitals for doing a, a terrific job. Uh, but before we uh, name names. Um, uh, how do you measure? You, 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 you talk about in your report who's really not uh, um, using the money for charity uh, work. How do you measure um, charity care provided in a given system and in any given hospital? Well, in our report, um, we looked at uh, Medicare cost reports that hospitals have to file every year with CMS, the, the federal Medicaid, uh, Medicare Medicaid agency. And they're required to report 
their charity care numbers based on their revenues. So what we did in the report is we, we picked five hospitals randomly. We picked by geography. We wanted to see how across the state charity care was being given out. So we picked Mass General in Boston. We picked UMass uh, Memorial in Worcester. We picked Bay State in Western Mass. We picked Berkshire Hospital System in the Berkshires and South Coast Hospitals in, in, in the, on the Cape. And what we found is those, those hospital systems were not pay, picked in advance based on their charity care numbers. We hadn't even looked at the charity care numbers. But what turned out to be the case is for all those five hospital systems, the charity care numbers are a straight line down from 2013, 2014 till, till this year. Um, so, so that's a problem. And again, we didn't want to dust up all hospitals. So we looked at the numbers and we found there were, there were hospitals like Boston Medical Center and Cambridge Hospital and Everett Hospital that were giving out large amounts of charity care based on revenue. Um, so again, I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but in our random sample based on geography, all the charity care numbers were down. So let's put that uh, in the uh, numerator. The denominator then is is how much uh, the program has grown in Massachusetts. You cite some numbers. I don't know if you have them at your fingertips. How in the last uh, eight, 10 years, uh, the money has grown. You've established that the money given to charity by those hospitals from the 340B has been going down, uh, uh, has been going down but the revenue coming in from 340B has uh, grown. Can you put a, a fine point on how much it's grown in Massachusetts? Well, we don't know because the hospitals aren't required to disclose their revenues, which is one of their uh, from 340B. But we know nationally the program has grown from about nine billion in 2009 to 38 billion last year. So, given that Massachusetts is hospital intensive, one would think they were reaping the benefits of that. And as I said, Mass General only had one pharmacy in 2017 that dispensed 340B drugs, and now it has 132. So I think we can uh, say with a high degree of confidence that revenues from the 340B program have exploded. We just don't have an exact number because they're not required to disclose it. So while the money going to charity has been going down across the board, um, by my reckoning, the money coming in from 340B across the country has a back of the napkin um, uh, quadrupled or seen a 400% increase over the last um uh, what do we see? Uh, eight years. That's yes, and and the thirty-eight billion in actual sales—that's the discounted sale price. Um, but one economist did a study arguing that 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 thirty-eight billion in sales leveraged an additional forty billion in revenue for the hospitals. So this is a huge program. Um, you know, seventy-eight billion dollars in money is flowing through this program, uh, according to some estimates. Now, we can't, um, uh, you know, go through all the uh, findings of all the hospitals that you you, you name, but let's let's start with um, you mentioned Mass General a few times. Um, so let's let's get to it. How how did a, a so-called man's greatest hospital fare in your study when comparing its its revenue to its its expenditure? Yeah, in in 2013, based on the Medicare cost reports, Mass General was devoting 3.8% of their revenue to charity care, which is a fair number. It's not real high, but it's a fair number. And in 2020, their, their charity care uh, number dropped to 1% of revenues. So it's declined substantially. And we found that in the other four hospital systems around Massachusetts. Um, and as I said, one would expect 
that their 340B revenues are, are exploding because they've gone from one pharmacy to 132 pharmacies that are dispensing 340B drugs. Um, I, I just would like to see the numbers on, on their revenue from 340B and what it's been over the past decade or so. This is all interesting because I think adding to perhaps our listeners' outrage is in, in the time between our two, four, 2014 and now, uh, the Affordable Care Act has, uh, you know, has taken hold, which in theory would mean fewer people are uninsured. We know that that to be true. So that this uh, shift from higher 340B claims uh, and lower charity is with the backdrop of saying um, there are few people who ought to be eligible. So. Uh, the hospitals have to either claim that there are uh, more charitable uh, patients despite ACA, which seems impossible, or less need uh, for charity, uh, despite the fact that their claims are going through the roof. A am I right? Yes. Uh, and one study concluded there's an inverse relationship between charity care and growth in 340B programs, an inverse relationship. As 340B grows, Charity care declines um, was the conclusion of this one study, um, which I, I think is unsupportable. I just, uh, you know, again, it would be hard to criticize the size and scope of this program if all of this money were, were going to charity care, treating homeless people, uninsured people, uh, providing mental health services, doing whatever uh, for patients that are really in need. But that doesn't seem to be the case. This is a real shame. Um, uh, more than a shame, as I say, you know, uh, uh, but let's let's uh, not call everybody out. We we actually have some good actors in your in your group that you uh, say you, you chose randomly. There were some good actors who 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 are uh, um, have a high fidelity to their charitable um, mission. Um, you call out uh, Cambridge Health Alliance and Boston Medical Center. What 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 do their numbers look like? Yeah, again, their numbers weren't a straight decline from 2013 to the present. It, they went down some years and then back up some years but they were substantially higher, even 10 times higher than some of these other hospital systems. So uh, I, I think there are some hospitals that are doing right by this program. And I also have the impression that there are a lot of clinics, Ryan White clinics, federally qualified health centers, and, and smaller clinics that are located in very difficult, challenged neighborhoods that are providing great service. Um, and they need these 340B discounts. And, and I don't want this program to go away. And I, I didn't write the paper to, to say the, paper, the program shouldn't exist. It just needs to be tightened up. And the people that really need these discounts should continue to get them. And the people that don't shouldn't. Indeed. So we're um, now we're getting close to the end of our show. Where can our listeners find your paper? Well, pioneerinstitute.org. Um, the Pioneer Institute's website has a, has both a press release explaining the the um uh, the paper, as well as a link to the paper itself. And it's about 15 pages or so. It's not, it's not burdensome to read. <laughs> no, Hopefully. indeed. And I, I went deep into some of the footnotes. You could be number of footnotes uh, also, which, which is good, supporting your, your observation. I know our listeners, again, this, I'll use this as our last uh, question. Our listeners are, are, are thinkers. They like think tanks, but they like to do. Um, what would you suggest? I mean, you've laid out what, what let's say, uh, lawmakers can do. Would, uh, would you recommend that our listeners, if they're persuaded, maybe maybe they may be, uh, some of our congressmen are listening to the show, but those who are, are voters, what would they do if they want to um, 
uh, encourage uh, uh, their uh, legislator to 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 jump on this out of um, you know out of compassion for the poor and the desire to see this substantial amount of amount of money go to the right place. What should they do? Yeah, I, 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 I'm big on transparency. I think both on the state and federal level, there should be some disclosure on the part of hospitals about the amount of revenue they're securing from the 340B program. Um, you know, requiring them to spend it on charity care, maybe, maybe not, but definitely disclosure and transparency. And, you know, if I were uh, just an ordinary citizen meeting with my legislator, I'd say, well, how come I don't know how much Mass General is getting from this program and how much they're spending on charity care. Um, and let's look at the differential between those two two numbers. Indeed, um, uh, transparency or sunshine is the best disinfectant. At the very least, we might be able to shame these hospitals into uh, giving the money they've been given as charity themselves, it was intended for charity, make sure if they are getting it, uh, we can then reasonably ask, well, what are you doing with that money? Uh, do I have that right? I, I agree 100 percent. Uh, transparency, uh, you know, I'm not a big government guy. I don't want the government to be directive on everything. Um, but just knowing the amount of revenue that are flowing into these hospitals from this 340B program and then comparing it on the amount of community programs for low income and uninsured, that would be a valuable data point. Wonderful. Well, let's end our show there. Thank you again for being on Humbug, Bill. You've been great. Thank you, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to help make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it's always welcome if you want to offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.